Hello and welcome. My name is Assad. My name is Jamie. We're two surgical trainees in the north of England, and this is the podcast that aims to dissect, to probe, to anatomize, and analyze what it is to be a surgical trainee. Welcome to It's Always Sunny in Surgery. So today we're talking about applications. Uh, we've got Asad here, Steve Tang, who's also a vascular trainee. And I feel like we probably need a trigger warning at the beginning of this episode because this is the one topic that I think brings up more traumatic stress um, for so many trainees. Thinking about it myself, like I, was, I, was, I was having to think about trying to remember what it was like going through the core training application process. And it was just such a horrible time. I'll get into that later, like why it was so horrible. Um, but uh, first, I think we should have a look back through the ages and go all the way back to when Asad first applied, um, which was when I said, <laughs> oh, I'm not, I'm not going to show my age. Um, I, I danced, I danced uh, many, many moons ago, eons ago. It's funny because this episode, I can sort of sit back and just scoff popcorn because it's been at least seven years since I've had to go through the charade that is specialty training applications. And I think it's just gone on a slippery slope downhill. Uh, because my, my uh, SE3 interview was great. Like, it was really, really well, well organised. But this was many years before COVID. But anyway, we'll come on to that. Mm. I think that when I applied for core training, it was just, it was a really, really chill type thing. It, with the deanery did it, it was deanery led. So you got an advert from a website called Intrepid, which was like the Oriel 1.0, frankly, a lot less painful and a lot less infuriating. All you had to do is you, you just applied and then you submitted your sort of portfolio of scores and blah, 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 blah. Then the dean sent you an email and they sent you out a little invite and that was it. You just turned up. You just went with your suit on with a portfolio and um, it was so straightforward. Like the worst thing about my core training interview was that as a Man United fan, I had to go to the Etihad Stadium. That was it. And um, Why did they do it there? I don't know. Probably that many people applying. <laughs> I don't know, actually. Yeah, I don't know. I guess Old Trafford, there can be divas about it. They're like, well, you're going to charge you top dollar if you want to come have your interview here. And City at this stage, I don't know if City were at the dizzying heights that they are now. And honestly, it was a couple of people, and I think the City squad were, like, training. So half the interviewers were looking out at the training exercises, the, the, you know, watching Aguero running up and down the pitch and stuff. It's pretty relaxed. Three stations, three questions, all very general. They took the time to flip through my portfolio and actually go through it properly. And then after that, I think, like, two weeks later... Two weeks later, like, yeah, that, that's it. If you want the job, the job is yours. Just click accept, and that's that. It really, really, really wasn't that difficult. If you're coming for ST3 ortho or whatever, or ST3 general surgery, that was also a DNA-led thing. You would just uh, rock up to that same stadium a couple of days later and have your interview there. Mm. 
sounds nice. I mean, that's <laughs> so that, 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 that's yeah. a very, very different experience to what I had for core training uh, applications and interviews, isn't it? I guess. I mean, um, you, you, you're, you're a good person to talk, Steve. You're like the chumbawumba of, of <laughs> surgical trainees, isn't it? You get knocked down, you get up again. Nothing's going to keep you down. I mean, like, disclaimer here is I have not been successful at the core training application. So we'll talk about that another time. I'm, sure, I'm certain of it. But my experience of core surgical training um, and this interview is through Oriel. Well, we all know Oriel as it is now. Yeah, I know. Um, it's clunky. It's not the best. Um, it's time consuming. It's laborious. It's everything into one. But at least you get all your evidence in. And then you submit it, shortlisted. You go to Charing Cross. Every surgical trainee who wants to enter CST have to go to London for an interview. Really? Yeah, everybody had to. They don't care where you live, where you're from, Charing Cross. That's where we're holding the interview. And then like that that process in itself was actually quite intimidating. I remember the first time round when I went, people would look at your portfolio and they'll take it off you. And then you look at the size of your portfolio compared to the size of portfolio some of your colleagues have. And you're just like, what on earth is this? I remember I saw a guy's portfolio having multiple pictures of himself and a surfboard on the inside of it. And I was just like, mate, maybe this is what I should have done to get myself a job and a number. You it to the right <laughs> job? Was he going like for a modeling job or something? Uh, face-to-face interview has is perks, but having to go to London from North it, and then some people traveling from Newcastle down to London, it's just not pleasant. It really isn't. Um, but I'm glad that that's changed in a way that face-to-face interview has gone into online so everyone has a good chance to do it in their own comfort it's very funny that you you you, you like the the online um i wasn't such a fan because that came in when i did my core training interview we were the first ones because it was right in the middle of covid yeah um and i remember it was just no one was really sure how it was going to work it was held on teams um and we were sort of told beforehand if there's any technical issues you know if your internet cuts out or we can't hear you or your camera stops not working then that's your fault no there's nothing we're going to do about that that's the interview over you know your chances are blown so there was a sort of paranoia that you were going to have some sort of technical fault in the middle of the interview um so i had like gone onto amazon and got every kind of lead that you could buy to make sure the internet (laughs) would never cut out and it's like six meter uh what are they called ethernet cables my I bought a speaker and a new camera and everything to try and make sure that you know nothing could go wrong and still i had some sort of like echoing from the from the microphone um but yeah there was i think since then certainly with the st3 interviews they've they've actually got their own kind of um uh program now i can't remember what it's called but it's like um it's like a software developed specially for interviews so you you kind of go on and it tells you are you in this stage now and then it and the interview pops up and things like that that was pretty good and i do understand like it's 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 it's, i think it's there's definitely a convenience to it of um of of not having to travel for your interview i mean i didn't even have to take the day off work i just went out interview and went back back in but um i think I think it would have been nice to have a face-to-face. I think what they should do really is not invite everyone down to Charing Cross and hold like they do with the um, the MRCS and have regional, North, North regional interviews. Yeah, um, that would make sense to me, but that's probably. Um, you know, I, the I, thing is, the thing is, like we know that they're not 
all the trainers that we know come across, some of the more senior ones aren't very tech savvy. In fact, some of them might just be dinosaurs. And to have them messing around with breakout rooms and, is this thing on? Is my mic? Jim, your microphone's on mute. You know, like to have those kind of people who are literally used to writing four line op notes with a fountain pen doing an e interview just doesn't sound like it's a recipe for success. Do you know what I mean? Um, I, I, the last t- time I had an e-interview was when I was applying for my research job. I think I was wearing a hoodie and I was at home because I had um, a zero day. And I was. some of my interviewers had some tech issues. They were talking and they were on mute and they didn't realise and they had to, un- you know, oh, sorry, sorry, did you get any of that? No, no, you're on mute. And then uh, my wife was cleaning the house because she couldn't wait for me to do it after my interview. And I was like, I'm going to be on interviewing can you just not vacuum for a couple of hours? I'll do it later. Like, I'll do it after. And uh, she unplugged the router. <laughs> and then I was just like, wait, wait, do the question. <laughs> Gone. Thankfully, because, it, you know, going for research, the interview process is a little bit more, well, a lot more informal. No one minded. But yeah, if that's your CST interview, and they said, if you if you cut out, that's it, you're gone. You're cut. That would be really traumatizing. You know, they can't just, you can't just be disconnected from a face-to-face interview. No, you can't. But I don't know. I, I've been through it both ways, haven't I? I had the opportunity to do face to face and online. Mm. And having a face to face reaction to some of the um, to interviewers can be off putting in some sense. Um, so it works better for some. Definitely not everybody's cup of tea. The other thing is you don't have to wear any shoes. So the thing going around, I, I swear, it was fake saying. Um, the interview panel just noticed that you weren't wearing any trousers. Please, could you bear this in mind in future interviews or something like that? <laughs> I'm not sure whether it was true or not. But, but I, completely, I completely empathize with your point as well, Jamie, about the tech issue. But yeah, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't just an online thing that changed a lot of it. Core surgical training, the whole application process has changed quite a lot um, since Assad's time. Uh, don't have that portfolio station anymore so you don't you don't bring your whole portfolio you have this thing called self-assessment which i don't know have you have you done that um Eve? i didn't do it so i had to coach a few people for core surgical training and i found it bizarre how you submit your self-evidence and then there's no portfolio questions about how you've done what you've done and so i think it relies really heavily on people knowing what to submit how to submit how to map because no one teaches you this, you know, no mm. one guides you how to do this correctly to maximize your score. Um, and I find that a little bit strange. What's to stop me from having done an audit and then just cobbling together a PowerPoint, sticking up there, being like, oh yeah, I presented this. I think that was identified as an issue quite early on that some people were massively overscoring themselves, you know, um, and then sort of they would still lose the points when someone came to check their evidence, but by that stage, they'd already secured an interview. So when I did it, you self, you submitted your self-assessment score, um, which was your score that you gave yourself. And then they invited you to, they, they, they did a cutoff based on that self-assessment score and, and then checked your evidence and then cut a few more people off before they interviewed. So there are a lot of people who probably may have got to interview had they been a bit more generous themselves. Seems a bit, I don't know, like lazy. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know how they came up with the 
the self-assessment thing, but they've stuck with it. I think it's, it's improved a bit because now, from what I understand, they don't do that, that, you know, they check your evidence first, but certainly, um, I think there was, there was, that wasn't something that was identified early on. Um, and of course there was, I'm not sure whether this is true, but there was, um, a suggestion that it was leading to gender, um, discrepancies as well, because someone suggested that men were more likely to overscore themselves than women, which I can believe. I don't know whether that was the case. But, um, so, uh, yeah, I, I don't know, but it's, it's, it's difficult. And then of course, there's the other issue of, um, you know, some people will say, no, this is a, a, a national presentation and then someone will disagree with it. And then you have to appeal it and it gets all messy. There was one girl, I remember she'd done a, she'd done a presentation at, at the Welsh conference, uh, Welsh national Welsh conference or something like that. And they said, no, that's not a national conference. And she said, okay, so KSS don't believe that Wales is a country and just became this. Thing. <laughs> <laughs> um <laughs> Yeah, a lot of changing of the goalposts. Yeah, um, seems every year there's like something different. I mean, the big one this year was the MSRA. Oh my god! I, you know, I, I, I was so happy that that happened after I'd applied. That was, I was it was almost like joyous because I could see something like that coming. I remember when, when, um, but lots of specialties do require this MSRA. So I was, I was adamant. I'm only applying for surgery because I don't want to do this exam. My uh, wife did it to apply for GP training. Yeah, so yeah, I just I can't. And then you you do it to apply for GP, anaesthetics, and anaesthetics, radiology, O and G, and I, I right. Some of them are parasurgical sort of specialties, so I'll concede that point. But how can an exam designed to test your aptitude for general practice training, which is completely different? There's virtually no surgery on the curriculum. How has that been retrofitted to an application for surgical training? I just, I don't understand it. It's interesting, isn't it? Because um, when it came out, a, there was a lot of backlash. It's not just from consultants. Um, societies, uh, multiple societies have backlash to it. Um, I remember the ACID wrote a very formal statement, including you know various other surgical subspecialties committees saying MSRA should not be implemented. It's it's got no association with how surgical trainees or surgical applicants should be doing it. Yeah, um, I mean, but they implemented it in the end, and it, it was it was another way of um, reducing because they had so many applicants. I think it was like over two thousand five hundred at one point, yeah. and um, they can't interview them all. So I think there was a, it was another way of trying to reduce that number down. Um, yeah, it's it's. Uh, I mean, I, I've never. I, I don't know what the MSRA is like, but I've heard it's 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 just a, another thing that they got to deal with on top of all the other stresses. Is um, you know, that's the sort of time when you should be thinking about your um MRCS part A. Yeah, and so if you've got another exam that you've got to now do, you're gonna have a load of applicants who are coming in who haven't done their started their MSA, MRCS yet am I am I right to remember they only said MSRA is being implemented maybe six weeks or a month before yeah, the deadline minute. 
And yeah, yeah. and I was just like, you can't do this. Surely not. There's not enough time notice on this um on this thing. And they were like, yeah, we're doing it. I was like, all right then. Well, good luck. <laughs> it's just another hurdle you have to vault in order to sit the stupid entry requirements to get your stupid interview out of the way. Sorry, I just <laughs> just winds me up that they make it so needlessly complicated. Oh, do we needed a trigger warning before this episode? <laughs> yeah, I've <no. laughs> not even sat the thing. That's the thing. I've not even sat it. My- I just got this sort of reactionary anger. If it was so obstructive and obtuse back when I had the choice of applying, maybe I wouldn't have bothered. You know what I mean? Well, yeah. I mean, that that's the thing. I think with other specialties, we'll, we'll go on to this, because if you compare the surgical um, route in terms of applications to other specialties, which are um, more uh, undersubscribed, say, like psychiatry um, and these sorts of specialties, they treat their applicants very well. Um, you know, they, they hold the thing quite early. They're very clear um, from why here psychiatry application process, pretty straightforward. Um, whereas they know that whatever they do, there's still going to be a lot of people applying for surgery. They don't need to, you know, cater to us. And so I think that's the issue, but it's interesting when you look at other specialties, surgery, we, we do have a bad time. Um, and a lot of these issues are quite unique to, to surgery. Um, Especially if you look at, you know, I was looking on um, Reddit recently and I was just looking at the core surgical applicants from this year and seeing like they were going through exactly the same problems that I went through two years ago. It hasn't changed at all. Um, Might as well just warn them, you know, before they start. This is is, not going to go well for you. (laughs) Um, It's not going to be easy. Easy. I know, yeah. CST Um, 2024, you might have to give us a kidney in order to apply. Yeah. Get one point for a Nobel Prize. (laughs) (laughs) Do you know, the sad thing is, is that all this has been born out of a need to kind of overhaul postgraduate medical and surgical training. And it's sad because it's like that Star Wars meme. It's become the very thing it swore it to destroy. Uh, I don't know. I don't know what I prefer. Um, I was looking back through this um, and all this modernizing medical careers and the medical, what's it called? Application system, medical Medical training application service. Yeah. All came about because back in the day, I think what happened was you would get your your PRHO, your PR ho job, which is probably quite appropriate if you're an F1 in surgery. Um, (laughs) then you'd probably do six months medicine, six months surgery. And then after that, that's it, you were done. You were free to apply for whatever SHO job you wanted. So you'd have to eye up the department. You'd have to wear your suit and your tie and get your portfolio and all that sort of stuff, or a blouse and skirt, whatever it is that you wore. Go meet the the big boss man or woman, take a tour of the unit, apply, and they just stick you on the SHO rotor, usually for six months. You do six months of that job, then you rotate onto another job. And then you rotate onto another job and you could stay on there for longer. But it was, it was fairly flexible. That's how you did it. And you would get some experience. So you would then be an SHO for like two years, I think, and maybe a senior SHO for another two years. And then you would apply for a reg job, which was arbitrary, which was a registrar job for sort of two years. And then the uh, you apply for an SR, which was a senior registrar job, which is where the number came in. So the rest of the time from graduating medical school to being an SR 
was just like the Wild West. You carved out your own training. And you could literally, you could do like six months in ophthalmology, six months in A&E, six months in orthopedics, six months in psych, and then go off and apply to do like cardiothoracics, if that's what you wanted. You could just become like a portfolio trainee. Uh, and it was up to you to devise your own training. Reg jobs were then awarded probably on the basis of you being in the department for a while. But then SR jobs was where there was a lot of bottlenecking. And that's where all this portfolio stuff came in. Because historically, SR jobs were awarded by profs because they were the people that had the chairs and the tenures and credential postgraduate training. So if you were going to get an SR job from a prof, that prof would have to know you. And that prof is going to get to know you by you churning out their research. And um, you were either the golden child and you were favoured and and that was fine. You were getting a job and you were going to be a consultant or you're persona non grata and you'd have to give up on your career or move regions or you'd have to be like middle of the pack, scrabbling up there to try and make it. And you thought you were going to go for a number you'd go for an interview and the big profs they decided they sat together and they said don't think you're ready i think you should apply for uh professor x not not the x-men professor x just uh anonymous professor of <laughs> uh professor x's research program over in this hospital there i think you'd be a good fit there and professor x would be like hmm, i've got this project i think you should do that and then you might do that and you'd go for um, regional presentations, national presentations. You chat to Professor X and say, "Do you think I'm ready?" Mm, I'll chat to Professor Y. Professor Y would say, "No, take your MD, go for a PhD, then we'll see." And then you do your PhD, and then they probably go, mm, "You're ready. I think you should apply." And then, as luck would have it, Professor X can dole out training jobs to whoever he wants or she wants, and the likelihood is that if you were their trainee and you'd gone all the way through, they would give you the job. You would get the SR job. You'd have four years just to kind of get your numbers, pump those numbers up, those are rookie numbers, and that was it, you consultant. So there were good and bad things about that. Number one, your time as an SHO was just broad. It could be as long or as short as you as you wanted to make it. It depends whether or not you were liked in the department. It depends whether or not vacancies were open. But you could. There was no guarantee that just because you were an SHO that you were going to get a reg job, like none at all. And so they affectionately referred to themselves as the lost tribe. Um, they were just sort of lost in the ether, just floating around in the middle, like rotor fodder. But then by doing the jobs and doing a variety of jobs, they accrued a lot of sort of cross-specialty experience. The other downside to that is if that prof didn't like you, you weren't becoming a reg. There was no two ways about it. But then, I mean, the flip side is if you if you worked hard and you worked well and someone liked you and you... It, They'd look out for you. They'd make opportunities for you, give you the job. So they really, really got to know you as a person. And they really, it doesn't become like this faceless hitbox kind of. Yes, yeah. exactly. That's exactly it.
So then along came modernising medical careers and out of that, um, son of MMC came MTAS and the forerunner and the precursor to all the stuff uh, that we have today, like Intrepid and Oriel and all that, all that business. The whole idea it was designed for was to try and avoid the career SHO or the Lost Tribe phenomenon. The problems were highlighted the same year that the system was set up. That was in 2007. And I was just, I Googled the Lost Tribe MMC in PubMed and I just got like all these hits. So I went and looked at the most cited paper. And it's an editorial from the Royal Society of Medicine uh, in June 2007. And they said that, first of all, the first myth about it is that no one ever actually necessarily agreed to the need to change the training pathway or overhaul it. Essentially, the Royal College of Surgeons said that they kind of rejected the imposition of MMC, which is a system that we're essentially currently under. Uh, And then a quote from this paper, even more damning is the Royal College of Physicians' assertion that this is the worst episode in the history of medical training in the UK in living memory, which is, I mean, most of these Royal College are fairly diplomatic in their responses. But I mean, Jesus Christ, that's damning, isn't it? And then uh, when they were talking about the idea that you get career essay chosen, they're on the endless cycle to compete. And there's a lot of bottlenecking at registrar jobs. And then there's more bottlenecking at senior registrar SR jobs, which is what we consider NTN. One of the comments on the paper, it says that the proposed solution to this problem will only serve to create a new lost tribe of genius consisting of those unable to secure one of the limited numbers of training posts or considered too experienced to apply for training posts, such as those undertaking higher degrees. In the past, we could choose to be lost in the pursuit of excellence, either via research or a broader clinical experience prior to specialisation, and it was these experiences which helped develop important, though less measurable, qualities of a good doctor. Right, this paper was published in 2007, and they could see the absolute shit show. 15 years of where we are now, they could see this coming, like soothsayers or clairvoyants. They knew this stuff was coming. We see it all the time. SHO is not getting uh, into core surgical training and then having to do fellow, 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 fellow jobs and CV bashing. And then, whoops, oh, you're too experienced. You can't apply for CST now. Sorry. And then the same thing until you get try and get an NTN. And then, oops, sorry, you're, you're overqualified. You're too experienced for, for, for an NTN. So you're going to have to, I don't know, Caesar or become a staff grade or whatever it is. And it's ridiculous. I mean, like just last week, there was something like 350 anesthetic trainees. And I know with surgery podcasts, but, you know, there are siblings on the other side of the curtain. So I feel like we should give them, you know, a bit of a bit of love. 350 anesthetic trainees applying for ST4. Not one of them got a job because there were no jobs from the Anesthetic National Recruiting Office. And like these people have done CT1, CT2, CT3 anesthesia. That's all they That's all they know. That's all they know how to do. They've sat their exams. They can intubate. They can do all the lines. And they can manage patients independently. And yet someone, someone has decided they can't get jobs. Again, another lost tribe without a job. 
And then they just have to sit there twiddling the thumbs, thinking about what am I going to do? I've just spent three years becoming an anaesthetist and you won't give us a job. At the same time, there's something like a shortfall of like 1,400 certain anaesthetists and someone somewhere decides that these people shouldn't get jobs. I mean, it continues even further, and this is a quote, the clear outcome of MMC and MTAS is to have politicised an entire generation of doctors. More tragically, they risk stifling the vocation of young professionals who, as enthusiastic, ambitious, caring as their predecessors ever were, are faced with unemployment, emigration, or at best, a shorter and inferior training experience. There are solutions to this problem, but they do not lie in a doctrinaire Department of Health championing an arbitrary application process. It blows my mind that 15 years ago, they could so accurately predict the, the train wreck situation that we're in now. Mad, isn't it? It's just not pleasant. <laughs> it's, it's such an unmitigated disaster that there's an actual Wikipedia page about it. It says it talks about all these criticisms. And essentially, there were, there were widespread protests about this. 10,000 doctors marched and people, resi- people lost their jobs. So a guy called Professor Alan Crockard resigned as the National Director of Modernising Medical Careers. In his letter of resignation to Sir Liam Donaldson, Chief Medical Officer, Crockard stated that he was increasingly aware that he had responsibility but less and less authority. And the overriding message coming back from the profession is that it's lost confidence in the current recruitment system. Widespread misgivings about MMC as a whole and the tokenistic involvement of doctors in the processes that govern their own training. And the website was, MTAS website was taken offline. But um, um, the same, after a math of MTAS, is that either colleges or deaneries were given the responsibility, but the system hasn't fundamentally changed. Um, So I just, I don't know. I don't know. Well, this is the thing I've always sort of had a, um, a reservation about the whole interview process is that they're judging you based on 15 minutes of performance um, rather than two years of being course core trainee. Whereas it sounds like that old way, you had a much more rounded view of what the trainee was actually like. Now that may have been subjective, as you mentioned, but at least they probably had a better idea of, you know, what you were like as a trainee, what your skills were, what your strengths were and your weaknesses. It's very difficult to get that information from 15 minutes of talking about your A to E assessment of some imaginary patient, isn't it? I think one of the benefits of the MMC business is that it does streamline core training. But having said that, I didn't enjoy core training. I didn't think it was particularly useful in terms of learning skills. I don't know what you guys think about that. Objecting. So what do you think, Steve? Um, I'm probably one of the people you will refer as the lost tribe, uh, aren't I, realistically? A little bit, yeah. Um, <laughs> so it, it's it, so you know i've gone through god knows how many years of shows i did four five maybe and you know like you said I, my breadth of experience was really wide and i got good at what i did without thinking too much about it without trying to and it was really good i really enjoyed it it was it made me a bit of a generalist but then i knew what i wanted to do so then you know you have to hone in your skills a little bit But when I applied for registrar jobs locally, all the consultants have came back to me and said, 
you know what, Steve, it, what you did was actually so much better. Um, or the old boy consultant would say the same thing as that. What you've done is essentially gained a lot of experience and experience can't be rushed. So by taking more time out, you have essentially benefited so much more than you would have done in F1, F2, C2, C2, ST3. And it, it's a shame. And I think regret the routes I've taken, don't get me wrong. Um, the balance here really is time out of training, gaining that experience versus penalization at national selection. You know, the longer you take out of training, the heavier your portfolio will be penalized, which is awful. Um, why should you be penalized for having more experience? Why should you be penalized for having, for being a better and a, and a more rounded person? Um, that was something I've struggled to get my head around for a number of years, because at the end of the day, I just wanted to be a good doctor. I just wanted to be a decent surgeon. You know, I just wanted to be a colleague that people trust. Um, and so I didn't pay much attention to my portfolio until a bit later on. Uh, whilst a prof would like you, then you'll get a job or prof hates you, you don't get a job. Uh, whilst that has its advantages and disadvantages, I think in some way it's shown that you're a good person, you're trainable, you're going to make a good surgeon because I've seen enough people who's gone through this pathway. Then that's more reassuring, if that makes sense. Whereas you're basing it on, you've done 10 audits, you've got seven oral presentations, you've got three publications, here you go, have a number. You know, it sounds like, Steve, um, that you've almost done like a little bit of a residency. Like you've been in the same unit for a while. And rather than chopping and changing, they get to know you. They get to know your skills. And you get, you don't have to prove yourself to someone. You get given what people know you can do. And you also get pushed to do a little bit more. Is that fair to say? Yeah. To work in the same unit for people to know me really well. They give me a lot of autonomy to do stuff I want to do. So... In some ways, that's good. But obviously, in the bad ways, it's, it's taking time out of training. It's, it's going to push me back for ST3 applications. It, it, there's, no, there's, no, there's no win to the scenario. But, but in some ways, you are getting better training, though, aren't you? You're getting more experience. And experience in all this is key, isn't it? Like That's the point. It's experience that makes you good. Yeah, absolutely. And I've said it many a times as well, which is, you know, I'm in no rush to be a consultant. I you just have to do a path that's right for you is what I'd say I said. And I'm happy where I am right now. So it's what it is. So going back to applications. What did you find about the ST3 one? We talked about core training ones, but your ST3 application, was that as as traumatic or do you think it was a bit better? Or I actually I actually really, really loved my ST3 application. So it sounds really weird. I sound like some sort of masochist, but um, I, so I applied way back when. This is like 2016. COVID's not even there. So I applied as a finished core training. And I was a naive little CT too, so I didn't really get the subtext. You had to go, London Deanery, maybe London Deanery offices. You go in there, you had to show up, you had to suit, tie, big portfolio. People were there going, don't panic, don't panic, it's okay, you're all right, you're here on time, just shows your checklist, okay, well done, give you the sticker, give you this thing, you just wait there, don't turn your phone on, get yourself a cup of tea if you want, just relax, 
all that. And then it was it was a full on interview. It was like ten stations. It was a half a day experience. That you know you had stuff like a clinical station. You had uh, clinical management stations. You had clinical communications, communications management, portfolio, academic, technical, uh, patient comms. So you were assessed on so many different domains, like so many different ways to look at you. And if if you if if you bombed in one station, it was fine. You just take the hit, move on to the next, pull yourself together go on to the next one, do well. So you had like three hours when they were looking at you. And it's not the same as a two-year assessment, but it isn't a 15-minute Zoom telephone call. You know what I mean? It was three hours of, let's look at you as a person. I think the main thing is that, like you said, you know, it's when you did the interview, it was more, you spent more time, there was more stations over a broader sort of um, group of uh ways to assess you and you did feel you came out of it feeling like they got a, a good idea of what you were like i came out of my interview feeling like uh i'm not sure how that went i have no idea how they thought i was um and i think i don't really feel like they've they've sort of got a good idea of what i'm like as a as a trainee um Mainly because you know, often these stations that they give the the clinical and the management ones, um, there there's not often that much to them, um, and it's it, it's more about how you present it rather than what you know, because most of the knowledge is pretty straightforward. If you've done an MRCS, which all of us who are applying have, the knowledge is straightforward. So it was more of an acting thing and more of a performance than a an actual test an actual exam that's what it felt like to me anyway do you know what it is i think like you go on the reg rotor and then you're kind of let loose right and some of these you get these questions and when they ask you about what would you do in this scenario your boss is heavily pregnant and she spontaneously goes into labor in the middle of your outpatient clinic and leaves you with a 28 hour, and you're like, this is when this is ever going to happen. But then when you're a reg, right, these things do happen. And so your aptitude for answering these abstract scenarios then comes from reality and experience. So I remember one time, you know, I was a, I was a reg on, on call and um, the consultant who was on call was like, right, well, look, we've done the world round. I'm going to go out for a bike ride because he wants to go out for a bike ride. He came off his bike, broke his wrist, immediately out of action. And then a person needing a laparotomy came in, and I was like, well, shit, <laughs> uh, this guy needs a laparotomy. And I have no consultant on call because uh, he is currently, <laughs> he came into the same department. He's like, I'm going to get my wrist tractioned. But he's like, obviously, they're going to have to, I can't answer my phone or I can't ring people. So then it, you then have to deal with the issues of trying to find someone, da, 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 all this sort of stuff. So when you get asked that question in the interview as a core trainee, you might be like, this is this is bonkers. But when you've actually lived it and had to deal with that problem, uh, then it becomes a little bit like, for example, you know, I, I was doing a clinic and a consultant's child became sick and they had to come home from school and they were the only person that could pick that child up because their partner is also a consultant in a surgical specialty who was like in theatre. So you have to go. So then you're left doing a consultant clinic. You're left doing an outpatient clinic on your own. And um, 
so when you're in SD3 or when you're going for the interview, you're like, this is ridiculous. When does this happen? But it actually happens fairly frequently. And I think that was, that's the benefit of taking a bit of extra time in order to get that experience so that when you answer the question, you're just like, oh, this is, I, this happened to me last week. I know exactly what to do. This is what you're doing. Like, this is what some, one of the vascular registers actually said to me, you know, um, if you've not done, if you've not worked as a reg before, it's quite difficult to answer those questions yes. in the way that they want you to, because they, they are testing whether you're thinking like a reg, which is something exactly. you get from being a reg. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> but that's ironic, don't you think? Because you're trying to be a reg, you have to be a reg to be a to Yeah, and, be a and then you're like, oh, I'm taking out of the training. Working as a yeah. reg. <laughs> 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 it doesn't make sense. It's like Schrodinger's <laughs> registrar. A registrar, but also not a registrar at the same time. Yeah. Um, no, that's interesting, though. Um, my take on the interview this year, uh, it's very different. I went for the ST3 last year, didn't get it. I, I wasn't, uh, yeah. And I went for it again this year. And my mindset was very different, actually, coming to the end of it and reflecting on it. It's that they weren't testing you on knowledge. They were testing you on how you react in a situation. Um, but the point was, it was getting you to think on the spot. It was it was you working back to your basic principles to know whether you're ready for that. It's like I've spoken to a few people who's not done a reg job who's applied for the same interview, and it's that they don't know how to react in that stress environment. And even I was stressed for crying out loud. I was like, well, I have no idea what I'm doing. And so they were just literally saying, call the boss. Yeah, I was like, well, I'm just going to call my boss for everything. And you're like, that's not wrong, but you know, there, there are still stuff you can do. But then uh, there's some element of truth, isn't it? Like we have seen it as I've seen it as a registrar consultant suddenly going off because wife was giving birth, yeah, yeah, consultant yeah. operating overnight, and when they have to cancel a whole list, who's going to do that? Yeah, you know, th- th- this kind of stuff has occurred, and until you've done it, it- it's quite hard to rehearse for that. Mm-hmm. And I-, I do think the SC3 interview is a bit abstract in that perspective. It's, yeah, absolutely. But that's my two cents. What the hell do I know? Do you want like what was it? What do you call it? Jerry's final thought. I can't be the only person who's watched Jerry Springer. No, else? no, no, no. I know what you mean. Jerry's final thought. Yeah. yeah. Wait. What? Oh wait. Uh, Jerry Springer. Yeah. 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 Oh, I was yeah, like Jerry. Jerry Springer. Springer. I was like, what's like, you ever watch it? Have you ever watched it? Yeah. Of course, we've all watched Jerry Springer. I, what I loved, right? I absolutely loved Jerry's final thought, right? Because you'd watch stupid stories. You watch like the worst of humanity. Jerry. 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 Right? And somehow. Jerry would get out some real humanity, some real poignancy <laughs> out of this human spectacle of a show. <laughs> so it's like, it's actually just worth watching Jerry Springer just for Jerry's final thought. Because somehow in all that madness and chaos, he distilled it down to like a real, real gem of life advice. So um, my Jerry's final thought for this would be, they're seemingly making specialty training interviews more perverse and obtuse year on year on year. And I don't know whether that's to intentionally discourage people from applying, but even if it doesn't go the plan or go the way you want, having an NTN is not the be all and end all of what surgical training is. Like our esteemed colleague here, Mr. Tang has, has sort of talked about He's got very, very high level skills without being in a formal training process. And ultimately, if you want to be a surgeon, right, 
don't let some arbitrary interview process stop you. It, it shouldn't, and it won't. You do have to play the game, but it's a pastime. It's not the sum total of your work. So there's, there's, don't be discouraged by it. Don't let it stop you, as annoying and as frustrating as it is. There are still ways, and we'll probably talk a lot more in detail about what you can do if it doesn't go to plan later. Very good. I like that. Yeah. Thanks. I think that went well. <laughs> yeah, better than specialty recruitment. Mm-hmm.